Hello and welcome to Socialism, the weekly Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party. How will COVID-19's political consequences compare to the aftermath of World War I? The pandemic crisis is frequently compared to a war. Marxists agree that there are parallels for many reasons, not least the political revolt that follows. After the Great War, the British capitalism entered a period of fast-changing economic and political crisis. Slums and mass unemployment, heroic strikes and mutinies, rapid advances for the new workers' parties, Labour and the Communists. How can we learn from Britain's economic strife and political ructions after the First World War? How can these help prepare the workers' movement for struggles in the era of coronavirus and the new depression? This episode of Socialism looks at lessons from history, Britain's revolt after World War I. So we're here this episode with Alistair Tice, who's a member of the Socialist Party's National Committee and our Regional Secretary in Yorkshire in the north of England. Hello, Alistair. Hey there, James. Morning. So we're going to be talking today about what the economy and the state of class struggle and political understanding, what all those complicated things are going to be like as we come through the pandemic and out the other end, looking at some of the lessons of history. Workers and socialists and trade unionists today are discussing all of these very important questions and comparisons have been made from all sorts of different quarters with wartime. Now, Marxists in particular, those of us in the Socialist Party and the Committee for Workers International agree that there are big parallels with wartime. But we would caution that we don't think that the end of this process is going to be like it was after the Second World War, which is one of the major comparisons being drawn. After the Second World War, there was a boom, a big upswing for capitalism, and we don't think that's on the cards. So we're going to be asking, could the situation after the First World War give us a better picture? What do you think, Alistair? I think that it could. I think that it does. I don't want to give a history lesson. That's all right. That's what we are talking for. (laughs) I will warn that, obviously, we're talking about things that happened 100 years ago. So with that caveat, I think it is important that we do compare the period following the First World War into the 1920s with the situation today and what we're expecting to develop over the next decade, next few years. I think there are definitely some big similarities, but also some big differences that we've got to take into account. So, for example, one of the similarities is that immediately prior to the First World War breaking out, the world economy was heading into recession then, after a 20-year or so period of economic expansion. The world recession had effectively just begun in the US before the war broke out. Whereas the same, you could say, was the case before the pandemic and lockdown last year, 2019, then the fastest growing economies in the world of China and India had slowed very rapidly. Most of Europe was flatlining, either already into recession or on the verge of recession, including Germany and Britain itself. So recession was coming 
without the pandemic, either this year, next year, but that's a big similarity. But I'd also say there's a big difference between what happened during the First World War from an economic point of view in Britain and what's happened during this pandemic and lockdown. So in the First World War, the British economy effectively switched to wartime production, to a war economy. So production was largely switched to arms and military supplies and equipment. There was the mobilisation into the armed forces, which meant that you had more or less full employment. So during that period of 1914 to 1918, there was a modest growth in GDP based on that war economy, maybe 2 or 3% per annum on average. Now, it was an enormous cost to British capitalism. The effect of the war was Britain as a major trading nation lost out on markets, particularly to competitors like Japan in the East Asia, the US in Latin America. But even more of a cost was the funding of the war, which particularly in the last couple of years or so was based on huge borrowing from the financial markets in the United States, which ran up a huge government and national debt and indebtedness to the US and to Wall Street to fund the war. Whereas if you look at the pandemic and lockdown, you know, the economy's been put effectively into quarantine or deep freeze. And that led immediately to a precipitate fall in gross domestic product to economic output. The end of March, April, May, we've already had figures for uh, showing a drop in gross domestic product of 20 to 25%, completely unprecedented. And we've already seen a big increase in unemployment as a result of that, notwithstanding the furlough scheme and other measures. And just like the cost of the First World War, it's been an enormous cost in terms of the budget deficit and national debt as the Tory government, in order to save itself, its own system, to try and prevent absolutely mass unemployment and a complete economic collapse, has been forced to take what we call state capitalist measures, government fiscal stimuli, which is running up an enormous budget deficit and adding to the national debt which, as Tory MPs constantly remind even Sunak, that's going to have to be paid back, meaning big cuts for the working class in the future. So by state capitalists, we would mean measures taken by the public sector, but to rescue capitalism and the market, rather than measures taken by the public sector by socialists, which would be fundamentally to infringe and remove things from the private sector and from private ownership. Now, you've drawn some of the differences out there between the economy during the First World War and the economy currently during the pandemic crisis. So perhaps it might be more salient then to ask what happened to Britain's economy after the First World War ended? Could we find some more lessons there? Well, the British ruling class were very worried at the end of the First World War in the light of the Russian revolutions in 1917, including the establishment of the first workers' state in October, November 1917, the mutinies and uprisings in Germany, effectively a revolution in Germany in 1918-1919, and with the prospect of having to demobilise millions of troops back into a British economy. So the ruling class were extremely fearful that there would be, at the least massive social upheaval, if not 
social revolution in Britain itself. So remember Lloyd George, khaki election campaign at the end of the war, December 1918, talked about a land fit for heroes. Of course, that was never delivered, but nevertheless reflecting the fear that unless they took measures to try and ameliorate the situation for troops returning and the prospect of mass unemployment, then it would provoke social upheaval. So a Ministry of Reconstruction was set up in 1917. Wartime measures were continued for a period after the war, for example, the mines and rail that had been taken effectively into state ownership during the war to save the war effort remained in state hands after the war for a period. A shorter working week was introduced in 1919. Unemployment, insurance and benefits were extended and increased in 1920. So in the immediate short term, faced with the prospect of mass unemployment with returning troops and social revolts against a background of revolutions in Russia and elsewhere in Europe, the capitalist government then was prepared to take what again we might call state capitalist measures, fiscal measures in order to try and offset an immediate crisis. And we're seeing the Tory government here doing the same thing, being forced to do the same thing by the same fears in terms of mass unemployment, economic collapse and the fear of social upheaval as a result of that. So the huge fiscal stimuli measures that have been taken, particularly by Sunak, the Chancellor, in order to prevent a complete collapse of the capitalist system and mass unemployment. Sunak said that with low or zero interest rates, then he will live with the deficit and try and grow the economy, which would then shrink the relative size of the deficit over a period of time. He's looking at a repeat of what happened after the Second World War, but of course then there was a prolonged period of economic boom, which did shrink the deficit, but that's not the prospect we're looking at after this pandemic and lockdown. But neither will the government's measures stop employers, big and small, from attacking jobs, wages, terms and conditions. I mean, the day after Sunak's budget last week, then five and a half thousand job losses were announced by just two firms in the high street. This is what's happening. This is what's coming notwithstanding any continuation in the short term of government fiscal stimuli. The other thing that happened after the First World War, as well as the Liberal Coalition government, as it was at Lloyd George then, continuing wartime measures, was a short-lived speculative boom based on the pent-up investment and demand arising out of the war economy and also a certain reconstruction for example, of the maritime fleet, 40% of which was destroyed in the First World War. This led to high inflation at the end of the First World War and immediately afterwards, speculation, high prices. So, you know, a question for us would be, will we see a consumer boom here now as lockdown eases and eventually ends. Now obviously the Tory government and the ruling class and the bosses are hoping that's the case, talking that up as the case and rush to reopen shops to get back to normal in inverted commas. But as we're seeing with the announcement yesterday of mandatory wearing of masks in shops in the next 10 days, 
continued social distancing rules, notwithstanding the fact that some sections of society have accumulated savings during the lockdown as consumer demand has been withheld. There's still the restrictions on shopping and consumerism because of social distancing, masks, fear of a second wave, spike of infection, and also the actual and fear of unemployment and wage cuts, which will inhibit any bounce back in consumer spending, which is vital to British economy, which is now more or less completely dependent on the service, retail and financial sectors. So yes, there will be in figures a bit of a bounce back. The figures yesterday, I think, for GDP in May showed a 1.2% upturn from the catastrophic fall in April. And there will be further upturn in the figures, but in reality, there's not going to be a V-shaped bounce back that the Tories initially were talking about. And let's remind ourselves, even if there was, then a V-shaped bounce back would only take us back to being on the edge of a recession that we were in in 2019. So it's hardly a sunny economic prospect either way. Okay, well, talking about short-lived recoveries followed by prolonged periods of crisis, let's return to the time after World War One. You talked about a short-lived boom based on speculation, on gambling, on the stock market and so on. Did that boom after the First World War last? No, it didn't. As I say, there'd been the wartime measures were continued for a period of six months, a year or so, and there was this speculative boom as well, which lasted for around a year, just over a year. But that was followed by a massive slump in 1920 into 1921. I think it was part of a global slump after the First World War. I mean, the consequences of the war were obviously... Massive destruction, particularly in Europe, disruption and dislocation of trade and commerce and a decline and contraction of European economies. Now, the United States, particularly in United States capitalism, had taken advantage of the war to increase its share of world markets, including supply in Europe. But the contraction of the European economies consequence on the war, dislocation and destruction meant that there was a sharp fall in European market, which massively affected American exports, which pushed the American economy into a recession, along with Japan, and that spread across the world. So we had a global recession. Now, the thing is, Britain, UK, was especially hard hit because as a major trading nation, the most dependent on trade and exports, had already lost some markets as a result of the war. Its industry was less competitive than the United States by then that had overtaken it in terms of industrial production and productivity of labour. So as a consequence, Britain struggled after the war and suffered badly in relation to trade. So, for example, British exports fell by half compared with pre-war situation and coal exports were only a third of 1913 levels. So that's quite a catastrophic decline. And that reflected itself in the UK with a 13% drop in gross domestic product in a 12-month period between 1920 and 1921. So 13% drop, that's of the order we're talking about, probably the fall in GDP 
in Britain this year as a result of the pandemic and lockdown. And one of the consequences of that was a massive, massive rise in unemployment. As I said, during the war and immediately afterwards, there was almost full employment. 2.6% unemployment in 1920 before this slump hit. That rose in a year to 23%. That's absolutely massive. Now, it fell back again, but never less than 10 to 15% during the 1920s and 1930s. So, you know, the catastrophic rise in unemployment. The other factors that affected the post-war economy were, as well as like the global slump and its particular impact on Britain as a trading nation, were political decisions taken by the Liberal Coalition and then the Conservative governments consequent on the declining position of British capitalism revealed during and after the First World War. So the British capitalists, like sections of the Tory party today, still wanting to have Britain as the greatest power in the world, etc. At that time, obviously, a hundred years ago, Britain had been the major imperial power. It was being overtaken by the United States and had been by Germany before the war, which was the main reason for the war, the inter-imperialist rivalry. But Britain still had the biggest navy, it still had the biggest trade reach, etc., and wanted to restore its position. So one of the decisions the British ruling class took was to restore Britain to what was called the gold standard where the value of the currency is fixed against the value of gold, and in particular that it be fixed against the pre-war exchange rate with the American dollar. But because of the relative decline of Britain, particularly of trade and the weakening of the economy relative to the US that was strengthened from the war and afterwards, then that meant there was you know, effectively the return to the gold standard, which took place in 1925, meant that the pound was overinflated, its value was too high relative to its real economic weight compared to the US and that required to keep it that way high interest rates and deflationary policies including the cutting of public spending. So between 1921 and 25, 25% of social spending was cut on things like health, education, housing, employment, benefits, etc. So deflationary policies combined with, you know, the global slump and the decline in British trade, they were all the factors that led to the 1920s being really a decade of relative decline for British capitalism. So what you had was this slump in 1920-21, followed by a weak recovery, 1922 to 25, then the impact of the gold standard, plus the general strike and minor strike in 1926, which obviously affected output. So there was another fall in GDP in 1926, followed then by a weak recovery, 27, 28, 29, leading to the Wall Street crash and into the 1930s depression. Now, there's been, you know, much speculation about the shape of the post-pandemic economy today involving alphabet letters like V and U and L and arithmetic symbols like tick and the symbol for the square root, which I had to look up. But if we look at the 1920s, which was a period of 
relative decline for British capitalism, as I've explained. Muriel Rubini, who's one of the few capitalist economists that predicted the 2007-2008 financial crash, he's predicted what he's called a greater depression for the 2020s, 10 reasons for a greater depression. And whilst he sees a temporary recovery from the immediate effect of the pandemic and lockdown, he's forecasting, if you like, a decade of decline and stagnation. Now, I think the point we draw out from the 1920s is that you know, yes, it was a decade of relative decline, but it wasn't linear, it wasn't straight line. There were ups and downs. It was more jagged and bumpy. So, for example, you know, there was a rapid shift from inflation. So, for example, in 1917, towards the end of the war, 25% inflation. 1919, it was still 10%. But by 1921, with that massive slump, Prices fell 10%. 1922, they fell 15%. They remained at zero or below right into the 1930s. So you had a rapid transition from inflation to deflation. As I mentioned earlier, that massive rise in unemployment. So from almost full employment, you got, for a very short period, 23% unemployment, but very high employment after that. So it's those sharp changes from one situation to another, the uncertainty that that creates. It's that that shakes up consciousness, you know, how people view what's happening in society or in the world, what's going on, don't understand this, this has happened before. That shakes up everybody's normal way, routine of life, of thinking about things. It's that that shakes up people's ideas and views, that shifts consciousness and opens people up to alternative ways of looking at things and doing things. Now, some of our listeners might be wondering having listened to that description, what it sounds like some of the economic problems caused in the 1920s weren't simply the result of the general economic circumstances, but of unhinged policy decisions by capitalist governments. And why couldn't we just do a repeat of the post-World War II boom? And for those listeners, it's worth listening to some of our previous episodes. Episode 64, World Economic Crisis, a Marxist analysis of the coronavirus crunch. And episode 73, Globalisation and Deglobalisation. You might also like to listen to episode 66, US Imperialism in Decline, and episode 70, China's New Role. These all look at the complicated shifts in the global economy and international relations, which go some way to explain why the period after World War I of complicated, prolonged economic crisis is much more on the cards for world capitalism today than anything like the prolonged economic boom which followed World War II. You mentioned that during these extraordinary shifts in the economic and political situation, which have a big effect on, as you put it, consciousness, which is the term Marxists used to mean the political understanding, particularly of the working class, of its potential role in society to force change and, in fact, ultimately to take command of society. But you mentioned as part of that that in 1926 there was a minor strike and, in fact, a general strike, a strike across all sectors in Britain. And this was a momentous part of British history, which isn't really explained very much. We'll have a podcast on it more fully coming forward. But perhaps you could expand on how these crazy economic shifts in the 1920s affected the class struggle? Well, one thing you've got to bear in mind is that prior to the First World War, there was huge industrial unrest, 
huge strike wave, whole series of major strikes by different sections of the working class as that 20-year boom was coming to an end before the First World War. So miners, dockers, rail workers, transport workers, even school students in 1911 went on strike. The years 1911 to 1913 are called the Great Unrest. And even during the war, there were still strikes, even though they were largely illegal, particularly 1917 engineering strikes, including in Sheffield, where I'm from, the Glasgow rent strikes. So there were big class struggles prior to the First World War and even to an extent during it. Whereas you'd have to compare with the situation for us today prior to the pandemic, then you'd have to say compared with then, there's been a very low level of strikes and class struggle preceding this situation. So the last year I've got full strike figures was for 2018. There were only 273,000 strike days lost that year, which was the sixth lowest total since 1891 only involving 39,000 workers in 81 stoppages. Again, those figures, the second lowest ever. Now, we've seen a modest net growth in trade union membership over the last three years. I think TUC-affiliated unions have grown by 100,000 a year on average for the last three years, which has reversed the trend of decline. And more importantly, in the last few months, we've seen a big increase in trade union membership in some of the public sector unions like the Teachers Union, the National Education Union, also Unison, and also I think Unite and GMB have recorded some increases. And so some Unison, tri- that's the public service union. Unite is the general union which mainly represents the private sector workers and GMB is also a general union in the private sector. Yeah. And we've also seen you know, some victories. The communication workers union that represent particularly the Royal Mail workers, would rightly claim a victory in forcing the resignation of Rico Back, a chief executive that was brought in a couple of years ago to do a hatchet job on the union and the workers. He's resigned, he's he's gone. The National Education Union, I think, can claim at least a partial victory in forcing back the government's early return to school plans. The Economist, the House Journal of the Ruling Class, you could say, you know, ran a headline recently to an article, the trade unions are back. So I think, you know, it does raise the question of can we see a big surge in strikes in Britain after this lockdown, as we saw after the First World War. And there was a huge strike movement after the First World War. I mentioned the great unrest before. There was a big increase in trade union membership then, doubled from, in 1910, there were 4 million in trade unions. By 1920, there were 8 million. So that double, 8 million, that's more than there are in trade unions today with a much larger workforce. And obviously there was the backdrop of the Russian Revolution, German Revolution, some mutinies in the British army and fleet before demobilisation. So fearing mass unemployment and with high inflation, workers in Britain after the war, after the First World War, went on the offensive. They went on the offensive for shorter hours. There were big engineering strikes in Clydeside for a 40-hour week, but also for pay rises because of inflation, with miners and railway workers winning big pay rises, national pay rises. 1919, 35 million strike days lost, involving 2.4 million workers. There were even police strikes in 1918 and 1919, Troops and tanks were put on the streets of Glasgow. 
in January of 1919 against the engineering strikes, warships in the River Mersey when the police were on strike later that year. In researching some of this, I saw archive material from the Daily Express, a very right-wing Tory paper, with lots of photographs from 1919 and headed this archive collection, 1919, the year of revolution in Britain. Lloyd George, the coalition prime minister, described 1919, country nearer to Bolshevism than at any time since. So you can see the massive explosion in class struggle that took place then. So (laughs) why wasn't there a revolution in Britain in 1919? Well, (laughs) that's a good question. Despite what Lloyd George said in terms of Bolshevism, unfortunately the trade union leaders at that time, (laughs) not just today, including those that would have regarded themselves as being left-wing, were not Bolsheviks, were not Bolsheviks, were not socialist revolutionaries, didn't see the need for the overthrow of capitalism and the establishment of a socialist society. So in the case of the right-wing leaders, they openly betrayed the workers' struggles and strikes. And in the case of the left-wing leaders, because they were at best reformists and not revolutionaries, then they balked at the prospect of using the power of the working class to actually bring down the Tory government and replace it with a workers' government, as has happened in Russia in 1917 and was attempted in Germany and other countries in Europe. And what that meant was, notwithstanding the huge scale of class struggle in 1919, revolution was averted. And as a consequence, the capitalist class gained a little bit more confidence The wartime measures were ended. There was the 1920-21 slump that I've talked about with the consequent mass unemployment, which obviously drove fear into working class people. There was a drop in trade union membership of 3 million as a result of that unemployment. And the bosses, the employers, backed by the government, went on the offensive. So having been fearful of revolution, having averted it, the capitalists then went on the offensive to try and take back everything that they'd had to concede in order to avert revolution. First against the miners, which had been, the mines had been returned to the private owners, who then immediately demanded wage cuts. The miners went on strike, called on the support of the rail and transport workers who were united in what was called the Triple Alliance, the Solidarity Action, but unfortunately, particularly the real union leader, Jimmy Thomas, who was one of these very right-wing trade union leaders, betrayed the miners who were left on their own and subsequently defeated, had to accept wage cuts, which were then implemented across the board by employers, and something like six million workers had wage cuts implemented after Black Friday in 1921 into 1922. But then what happened was workers defeated on the industrial front turned to the political front. So, for example, the number of Labour MPs returned in elections in 1922 and 1923 increased to the point where in 1924 there was a very short-lived minority Labour government, which unfortunately didn't really carry out any serious reforms. And when that failed, and with a slight upturn in the economy meaning that there was a fall in unemployment, albeit still around a million, a million and a half. Workers turned back to the industrial front to fight, and once again the Triple Alliance was enacted in 1925, when the mine owners again came for wage cuts and lengthening of the working week. 
This time, the rail and transport unions did agree to back the miners and the threat of a general strike forced what was a bit of an unprepared Conservative government at that time to back down a bit to buy time. So they conceded a nine-month subsidy to the mining industry, which meant that wages and hours remained the same for that time and set up the Samuel Commission to report back, which it did nine months later, and after which the mine owners immediately demanded the same wage cuts and lengthening of the working week, which did lead to the 1926 general strike that you talked about. But again, those same trade union leaders who never wanted the general strike. In fact, the government was so confident it more or less provoked it in order to try and defeat the miners and the working class. And that's unfortunately what happened. The miners were left to fight alone for another nine months were defeated, a huge defeat for not just the miners but the working class as a whole. But then again that led to a return to the political front and by 1929 you had the election of a second Labour government. So the point I'm trying to make is yes there were mass class struggles but there was also a shift from industrial to the political front and back again depending on defeats or being blocked. So workers looked for a way out one way or another. And this role of the leadership of the workers' movement, which you've brought out again and again here, that's extremely important, isn't it? Because, I mean, during the 1926 general strike, the government at the time, the Conservative government of Stanley Baldwin, wrote to the leaders of the trade unions and in effect said, well, gentlemen, the country is paralysed, the government can do nothing, will you take power or not? Goading them to carry out a revolution. And they refused to, called off the strike and put the government back in power. So it just goes, you know, to show that they were handed it on a plate and due to their lack of a plan to actually overthrow capitalism, it was all lost. So you talked about mass unemployment developing as a result of the slump We're expecting mass unemployment again now. You've also talked about that. What effect did it have in the 1920s? Well, when you get such a catastrophic increase in unemployment, as there was as a result of the 2021 slump, where it went up from 2-point-something percent to 23% and stayed over a million and a half throughout the 1920s, then, I mean, trade union membership, as a consequence of that, fell by 3 million. So how could that not have an effect of inhibiting, for a time at least, you know, strike action, industrial action, workers losing their jobs or in permanent fear of losing their jobs? But as we saw, there was a shift to the political front. And then when that was blocked, and there was a bit of an economic upturn after 1921, so 22, 23, 24. Yes, unemployment was still high, but it was lower. It had gone down. Some people had got their jobs back. So that was probably a factor in the return to struggles on the industrial front because workers had a little bit more confidence that unemployment had stopped going up and started going down, jobs had come back, etc. So, again, it's not just there being mass unemployment, but it's the shift in that as well. Now, as you said... And, you know, all the capitalist economic experts agree as well and are fearful of mass unemployment as a result of the curtailment of the furlough scheme and the ending of it. There's constant talk now of three to four million being unemployed, more unemployed than under Thatcher, one million young people unemployed again by the end of the year. What will the impact of that be? Well, you know, will it be like the 1920s where, yes, it had that inhibiting factor, I've got to say, 
that's a real prospect uh, to unemployment and the fear of redundancy could well inhibit strike action. But it's not automatically the case. So, for example, if you look at the 1980s under Thatcher with three million unemployed, when did the miners go on strike? For a year. It was in 1984, 1985, when unemployment was at its highest. Why did they go on strike? Because the government wanted to close down pits that would have decimated jobs and employment and the futures in the mining communities. So they were fighting for their futures. They had nothing to lose. They went on strike, which outside the general strike in 1926, the most historic strike in British history. So workers could respond with strike action and or... What happened in the 1970s when unemployment started rising rapidly under the Ted Heath Conservative government and then under Labour in the 1970s, there was a whole spate of what were called workplace occupations where companies would announce that they were closing their business, shutting up shop, locking the gates, and workers would decide that they wanted to fight to keep their workplaces open to save their jobs and stay put, stay in the workplace, stay in the factory, lock the gates, but from the inside. Workplace occupations demanding either the employers reopen or more likely government action and intervention in order to keep workplaces or industries open. And that sometimes led to jobs being saved, particularly where workers ended up establishing workers' cooperatives put together with trade union backing and support and set up, if you like, usually on a smaller scale but saving a lot of jobs in the short term, workers' cooperatives. Now, that's not a long-term solution. Most of them ended up going to the wall because how can you operate a little island of socialism in a sea of capitalism, particularly capitalism in crisis? But we could see workplace occupations are happening again and something that we would call for, that workers and trade unions should take such action. But of course, we demand that there should be nationalisation of those failing or companies declaring closure or redundancies in order to save the jobs and make sure that there's guaranteed employment for the future for such workers. The other thing I mentioned before was, you know, how workers in the 20s turned from the industrial to the political plane and back again. So... Even if there isn't big strikes in the short term because of the big rise in unemployment and the fear of redundancy, we've already seen as a result of the health crisis from the pandemic and the beginnings of the economic crisis consequent on that, it's already had a big effect on consciousness. Look how quickly Boris Johnson has gone from being a hero after the general election, or at least for some, to a zero in terms of his falling opinion poll ratings and negative rating now for handling of the pandemic. The eruption of the Black Lives Matter movement, that youth movement, and, you know, consequent on that, all the changes in social attitudes that have been recorded in various polls as well. So even if there isn't big strikes, and there could be, but even if there isn't, there will be more big social movements, I'm sure. You know, Black Lives Matter... She's ebbing a bit now, but could re-erupt on any, you know, incident. A return of the climate change, school student strikes and environmental protests. Housing is a massive issue that could see an explosion. Again, particularly in the private rented sector, especially young people with the lifting of the rent freeze on evictions, etc., which is coming shortly. So... You know, there's going to be plenty of sharp turns and sudden changes, if you like, that described in the 1920s that will shake up and radicalise political consciousness now, especially, I think, amongst young people.
So how did that political radicalisation in the 1920s express itself? Well, if we go back to then, then the Labour Party, which I mentioned, which did actually form its first minority government in 1924 and then again a second government in 1929 at the end of that decade, at that time the Labour Party was what we would maybe call today a new workers' party. It was a new party. It obviously had developed over a period of two or so decades, really. But, you know, it was still a new workers' party, what Lenin, one of the leaders of the Russian Revolution, described at that time as a bourgeois workers' party, meaning that in the leadership at the tops of the Labour Party, then the leaders were generally either pro-capitalist at worst or at best saw improving the lot of the working class through social reforms, but within the framework of capitalism. Whereas at the base, at the root, the Labour Party had been established through the trade unions, who finally broke with the Liberal Party, and had overwhelmingly a working class membership and working class electoral support. So even though it had, if you like, a bourgeois leadership, that leadership was still subject to the pressure of the working class through its electoral support and membership. Whereas today, you know, you'd have to say since the end of the Corbyn experiment and with Keir Starmer being elected as the leader of the Labour Party and consolidating his grip, both organisationally and I'd say politically now, Starmer, who is a Blairite, who is a pro-capitalist politician, then we're looking at Labour moving back to the Blair-type era of new Labour, of being an openly capitalist party. And I think, you know, activists in the movements and certainly the Socialist Party would now argue that we need a new Workers' Party again. Now, that's not going to happen overnight, but on the back of the sort of struggles that have described are entirely possible as a result of the pandemic, the lockdown, the shift in consciousness, the rising unemployment, the attacks there will be on paying conditions, etc., social movements such as Black Lives Matter, climate change and others, then we could see the development of a new Workers' Party in the very foreseeable future. So the other factor in the 1920s was, as well as the Labour Party, had the foundation of the Communist Party of Great Britain in 1920, which brought together most of the best trade union militants and socialist revolutionaries at that time, came together to form the Communist Party inspired by the Russian Revolution and the Bolsheviks. Now, the Communist Party in Britain was never a mass party like some of those that developed on the continent as a result of big splits in the social democratic parties where left wings split away and then affiliated to the communist international declaring themselves as communist parties, some with hundreds of thousands of members from the start. In Britain, the communist party never got to more than a few tens of thousands. But that new young Communist Party, as I say, included some of the best militants and revolutionaries in Britain at that time and did, in its early years, sink deep roots in workplaces and in some of the trade unions. So, for example, there was initiated by the Communist Party, but working with other left-wing trade unionists, there was a sort of rank-and-file left 
trade union organisation established called the National Minority Movement and at its height a quarter of the TUC affiliated unions subscribed or supported the National Minority Movement and I think we would argue that not just the National Minority Movement but the Communist Party itself could have grown massively out of those class struggles that I've described from the 1920s and especially out of the 1926 general strike if it had not been for the Stalinist misleadership of both the British Communist Party and particularly the Communist International, which by 1925-26 was more firmly in the grip of Stalin after the death of Lenin and the witch hunting of Trotsky. Their misleadership, in particular sowing illusions in the British TUC leaders, in the run-up to and during the general strike, which miseducated, misled the Communist Party members and uh, militant activists, and as a consequence meant that, you know, the sellout was complete and really not challenged, which obviously led to big demoralisation, including amongst Communist Party ranks. But the Communist Party's roots in those early years and the potential that they had, albeit it was not seized because of that Stalinist misleadership. But those roots and that potential, I think, should give us confidence that the Socialist Party, which, yes, as well, is a small organisation, relatively speaking, but already with roots in many trade unions and workplaces, and playing a leading role in the National Shop Stewards Network, which does have affiliated to it 10 or 11 trade unions in the country, that we can grow rapidly in the turbulent period that has been opened up as a result of the pandemic and lockdown, that has been heralded by the massive Black Lives Matter protests, and in which I think the organised working class that still has, remember, six and a half million workers organised in the trade unions will play a leading role over the next few years in which socialist consciousness will rise and within that I think the Socialist Party can play a leading role in guiding the forces that can challenge capitalism and put forward the prospect of changing society along socialist lines in order that the wealth and resources of the world can be used for the benefit of the overwhelming majority. So, as always, if you like what you hear, don't forget to recommend us to your co-workers, your friends, your family, and donate to help fund us. And if you agree, join the Socialists. Thanks very much for joining us today, Alistair. OK, thank you. Socialism is produced by the Socialist Party, the England and Wales section of the Committee for Workers International. Today, we heard from Alistair Tice speaking to James Ivans and Army St. This episode was edited by Nick Hart. The Socialist Event of the Year will be Socialism 2020. It's an open forum of discussion and debate over four days, 20th to 23rd of November. Join hundreds of socialists, trade unionists and working class fighters to discuss the way forward in this unprecedented crisis of capitalism. We're scheduling it online, but if in-person sessions become possible, you can upgrade your ticket nearer the time. Read more and book now at socialism2020.net. You can find further reading in the notes in the podcast app and at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash podcast. If you want to get in touch, email 
Socialism Podcast at socialistparty.org.uk. Do you agree with the policies and actions the Socialist Party is fighting for? We need you. Send us your details at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash join. If you live outside England and Wales and want to join the fight for socialism in your country, contact the Committee for Workers International by visiting socialistworld.net. Socialism, the podcast, has no wealthy backers. We rely only on the funding from the working class, which maintains our political independence. So help us take the fight to the big business. You can make a regular donation or a one-off payment at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash donate. Till next time, solidarity.